Good afternoon, everyone. It's nice to see so many of you here. My name is Doug Fullington, and welcome to our matinee performance of Giselle today. Uh, we'll be talking about Giselle for the next half hour, and I'll tell you what I know about the history and the story and about our production, but I'm also very happy to take your questions at any time, questions or uh, topics you'd like me to discuss. Please don't hesitate, just flag me down. Um, I first always like to ask, who has seen a production of Giselle before, either here or elsewhere? Okay, so maybe about half or so, that's been about how, how it's been, which is great through, throughout the run. Uh, Giselle has the distinction of being one of the oldest ballets in the, the uh, sort of global ballet repertory. It was first presented in Paris in 1841. This was a period of time when most ballets were referred to as ballet pantomimes, uh, which essentially meant that they were plays with dancing. And about half of the ballet is dedicated to the narrative or the play portion. It was also a time when ballet was trying to become independent from opera. And it, it struggled a little bit because of the lack of words. Of course, opera's got words. They can be printed in a libretto and given to the audience, and the singers are singing them. Sometimes there's some spoken word. But ballet didn't have that, so the creators of these ballet pantomimes were doing all they could to try and get these words, quote unquote, across to the audience. They did this through pantomime, the gestures that the dancers uh, and actors would make to each other, kind of like what I'm doing with my hand right now. There's some, some natural gestures that we all do, like waving or shaking hands or embracing someone. There's also a, was a more codified uh, set of gestures with specific meanings. For example, you could point at your ring finger and that would indicate marriage or engagement or uh, a desire to get married or anything to do with marriage. We have in the program today a pantomime guide with a few of these gestures drawn out. They were drawn by one of our former soloists, Ugo Gorder, back when we first presented Giselle in 2011, and we always put it in the program to sort of help with that. Sometimes uh, songs were included in the musical score that an audience would know, and that would help them to understand what the general situation is, and that's still done today a lot in television and in film. Sometimes signs were held that would uh, describe the event, or if it was a special event, like a festival. Um, some people might walk in with a banner that would say what the the festival was, so all, the, all these ways to put the story across. Why don't I tell you what the story of Giselle is in a nutshell? It's essentially a ghost story. The creators of, of the ballet um, tried to trick the audience a little bit by beginning the ballet as they would a comedy, either a ballet comedy or an opera comedy. We've got two young people in love with each other. We have Giselle, uh, who is a, a young peasant woman who lives in a community that grows grapes and makes wine uh, in Germany. And she has a boyfriend named Lois. It may have been pronounced Loire or Louis, maybe a little bit like Louis. We tend to call him Lois in our Americanized way. Uh, they're not engaged yet, but they're planning to get married. Uh, Giselle has a mom who uh, is uh, not 
super enthused about this. She thinks also that Giselle's a little rebellious. Giselle loves to dance. She'd rather dance than work. Uh, she's, but she's also uh, very popular and very gregarious, very loving, very passionate. We find that she reacts passionately to every situation that she's in. Problem. It's not a comedy because Lois isn't Lois. His real name is Albert, and he's a duke. So he's in a class, uh, social class, far above Giselle's. And uh, the period of time in which this took place, which when Giselle was first done was sort of an idealized Middle Ages, there was no, uh, no thought that they could ever have a relationship together. And to boot, he's engaged to someone else. He's engaged to a young woman named Batilda. She is the daughter of the Prince of Courland, who's sort of the lord of the land that everybody works for. But Giselle doesn't know this because Albert is disguising himself. He truly is in love with Giselle, but huge problem. <clears throat> Third party here, there's a man named Hilarion who's the gamekeeper for the uh, community. He's the captain of the hunters. And he's in love with Giselle. He cannot understand why Giselle doesn't love him. He does not like Roy's, and he knows there's something fishy and he spends the whole of the first act trying to find out what that is. Well, he does find out. And he exposes Lois very publicly in Giselle's presence. And Giselle, the shock of the discovery, uh, causes Giselle to, one, suffer a heartbreak, physical heartbreak, as well as, as uh, briefly lose her, her reason and lose her mind, in a sense, retreat back into herself. And this causes her to die. So uh, all of this was uh, concocted by the creators of the ballet because they wanted to get to act two. They were enthralled with the legend of the Willies. Uh, the Willies, based in part on a Slavic legend, if you know Harry Potter, I think it's book five, the Bogotan School and the Vila, I'm saying that right, a similar type of being here. A little bit siren-like, beautiful, but with the Willies, couple of things. They also were in love and died before their wedding day in some sort of heartbreak circumstance. They also loved to dance. So they are doomed to rise from their graves every night and dance and also entrap men and dance them to death. Because the willies sort of have a superpower of spirits. They're not going to tire out, but they will dance these men until they're so exhausted they can't stand up anymore, or do anything, and then they'll toss them in the nearby lake and they'll drown. So uh, Giselle's mom, Berta, warns Giselle, if you dance too much, you're going to become a willy, and Giselle says, I don't believe any of that. And, um, but everyone else listens, and it's sort of in the back of the mind that this, this legend is out there. Well, at the top of Act Two, uh, Hilarion's in the forest with all of his hunters, at night, they're a little bit lost. The nearby bells uh, chime midnight, and they get scared because they see will-o'-the-wisps in the, in the trees, and Hilarions warn them about the willies, and off they run. Well, then we meet the queen of the willies, whose name is Myrta. Uh, we're presented to her first, and then she calls all of the willies forth from their graves, and then they're going to induct a new willie who is Giselle, of course. So Giselle is inducted into the band of the Willies. Um, a little bit later, Albert visits, Lois slash Albert visits Giselle's tomb, uh, distraught by what's happened. 
also has a fair amount of damage control to do with the audience, I think, after, after all he put everyone through in the first act. And Giselle appears to him. Somehow she's retained a, a bit of her humanity, some of her love for him, and uh, they have a tender sort of encounter together. But then Albert hears a noise and hides, and it's the Willies who have caught Hilarion, and we get to see how they dance somebody to death. Uh, after that, they catch Albert, and they're about to do the same to him, but Giselle intervenes. She stands up to Myrta, the queen, and keeps Albert alive until the sun comes up. Turns out the Willies don't like the sun, and they don't like crosses either, so it gives you an idea of what they're the kind of beings these are. So the sun is coming up, Albert's getting his strength back while Giselle's is receding, and she says to him, essentially, I, I release you, and, and you need to return to the land of the living, and uh, you should marry the woman that you were intended for. And uh, that is uh, how the ballet ends. So uh, it was very popular in 1841. It went over just wonderfully. And it was taken up by all kinds of theaters around Europe and in the US. There were performances in Boston, Philadelphia, New York, uh, Russia. And it stayed in the repertory in one place or another since 1841 all the way up until today. And it's been handed down from dancer to dancer, sort of generation to generation. It's morphed a little bit as it's gone on. Uh, but it is a ballet about which we know quite a bit about the first performance, what the music was, uh, what happened on stage, what the dancers wore, what the pantomime conversations were, even what some of the dance steps were. Uh, when Peter Bowl decided in 2011 to bring Giselle into the repertory, uh, he invited me and uh, my colleague, Marion Smith, to uh, work with him and look at some older sources for Giselle. There's some wonderful staging manuals from the 19th century and musical scores that are marked with what the action was and how it was supported by the music. So we all work together to, to, uh, to put together kind of a unique Giselle. It's a little bit of a hybrid production because we drew from a number of sources. We've, we've talked about them some in the program. We also drew just on the oral tradition of Giselle as, as it's been handed down over time. But one really neat thing that we discovered was that over time, if something's handed down, say if you're playing a game of telephone and the sentence starts in one place and it ends in another, and you know it's going to change. <laughs> it's going to change or streamline or sort of become something different. That did happen with Giselle in a few ways. Some of the characterizations we felt became a little bit one note. The character of Giselle changed as well in the first part of the 20th century, where she had been a uh, we had found she had been a very gregarious character. She became somewhat shy. Um, a lot of attention was given to the fact that she might not be physically too well. She might be a little bit frail. Uh, it might not come as a surprise that she died after all. But we find when we look at the 19th century sources that that wasn't the case. She was, she was a strong, uh, uh, really active and healthy character. She sort of stood up to anybody that she didn't agree with, whether it was her mom or Hilarion who confronts her, or even, even Lois. Uh, and that made a lot of sense to us because in the second act, she stands up to Myrta. She's the only one to stand up to the queen and, and save Albert, whether he deserves it or not. And uh, we, we really like that. So uh, that's the characterization that we've worked towards in, in our production. Uh, in 2011, 
we did all that work, but we didn't have a budget for new scenery and costumes. And we were able to uh, rent those uh, from Houston Ballet. But when the ballet came back in 2014, uh, Peter Bull commissioned designs from Jerome Kaplan. Jerome is uh, our designer for our production of Romeo and Juliet. Uh, Alexei Romansky's Don Quixote that we performed. And Jerome took the same kind of route. He looked at period sources for Giselle. He looked at drawings of the scenery. He looked at drawings of the costumes. Uh, he also decided that instead of setting it in a kind of idealized Middle Ages, he would go ahead and set the ballet in the period in which it was made, in the 1840s. Because he found that the women's costume designs were 1840s designs. And he, he thought that it made a lot of sense to uh, to have all the costumes be from the same period. So uh, it has the look of a period drama, if you will. And uh, I think we, we ended up with, I think, one of the most deluxe productions that we have. I think visually it's very beautiful. We have many painted drops that were hand-painted by our scenic shop. The costumes were built next door in our costume shop. And uh, it's wonderful to see it back on stage. We haven't performed it since 2014. We were supposed to in 2020. Got canceled, of course, but here we are three years later uh, with the ballet uh, back in repertory. We've had a lot of debuts, of course, in, in the roles because we haven't performed it for so long. But today uh, you will see uh, Leslie Roush, who is a veteran Giselle. She did perform it last time that we did it. Uh, she's partnered uh, by uh, James Kirby Rogers as her Albert, and I believe it was James's debut in the role last week. And to boot, uh, if you would like to come back down here after the performance, Leslie and James will be here with Peter Bowl for the post-performance Q&A. It's a great time to discuss the ballet, hear from them uh, about their thoughts about working on the ballet and the characters. It's also a great way to let the parking garage empty out so you can walk right over and scoot right down to Mercer. Um, I haven't said anything about the music. The music is by a composer named Adolf Adam, who, who you may not have heard of, but if you know the Christmas Carol, Oh Holy Night, that's the composer. He was a very popular theater composer, composed many operas, and ballets in the mid-19th century. It was a period of time where the music was intended to uh, stick very close to the action. So if a character is conversing with another in mime and in gesture, and they're saying, uh, say, a sentence that is, is happy or joyful or, or romantic, the music is going to underscore that. If they're angry, the music will sound angry. If they're going to go knock on someone's door, the music's going to have the knocks in it. So what we see and what we hear uh, is very closely tied together. It's very much the precursor of a, a film score, uh, and, uh, or a silent film score, if you will. The idea was that the, what we see and what we hear is very closely tied together, again, to get the points across and that narrative across uh, without words. So our dancers have spent a number of weeks working on this. Um, I always love to share that Peter Bowl is a great coach of gesture and mime and just sort of carriage on stage, and I think the whole company really benefits from that, that coaching, and I think you'll see that on stage today. Uh, I think I'll, I'll stop there for a moment and see if there's uh, any particular question you want to ask.
about story, music, scenery, costumes, uh, or anything else? I have one. Oh, great. Thanks. Um, you know, as, as you were, I, I haven't had time to look at all the material that you, that PNB sent out beforehand, which was awesome. Mm. Um, but as you're talking about the willies, the willies, and I'm hearing that out loud, is that this? I mean, I remember from my childhood there was an expression about you get the willies. Is that where it's from? <coughs> I believe so. It gives me the willies. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, I could be wrong, but I've always thought the same thing. Okay. Uh, yes. It was near the beginning. The, the uh, topic here is uh, point work and uh, the, the dancers dancing in point or toe shoes. It was developed a little bit before this. It was starting to develop in the first part of the uh, 19th century, a little bit at the end of the 18th century. But by the time Giselle was performed, it was uh, expected that the women dancers could dance on their toes. But the shoe is a lot different from the kind of shoes we have today, which are what we call blocked. They're uh, layers of cardboard and glue that give quite a bit of support to the foot. The shoes still in 1841 were just reinforced sort of on the ends with leather and kind of darning. Uh, the dancers did a lot of exercises to strengthen the muscles in the feet, but there doesn't seem to have been the sustained kind of point work. Um, say that we'll see in the beginning of the second act when Myrta enters and she's just, uh, we call it bourre, she's bourreing on point or just sort of kind of floating across the stage on her toes. That is something that came a little bit later in the 19th century. But Giselle certainly is part of that earlier period of, of point work. Oh, sure. Yeah. So with the new set like this, do you keep it exclusive to this company, or do they start to market it like Houston did? Well, that's a great question. Do we, um, have we rented our set out? We haven't. We've been a little bit territorial about it because it's, it's all a little bit fragile, and the costumes are quite fragile, too. The, the top layer of the Willie's skirts is, is just this great fabric that just sort of floats like sort of smoke in the air but you just look at it the wrong way and it'll tear. So uh, we've been really careful with that. So we haven't, we haven't rented this production out to, to any company at this point. We've had a couple inquiries, but it still feels new, even though it's, I guess, nine years old now. <laughs> we can't count those three intervening years. So did, did you have a question? Yeah, did we see Bold as Albert in 14? Yes, Bold, Bacquerel Bold was Albert and also Hilarion in 2014. Can yeah. you hear what he's doing now? Uh, he is, uh, Bold has retired. He is, uh, he is married to Leslie Rausch, whom you will see today, and uh, just works outside of the dance field. Yeah. So, um, yeah, he's, he's around every so often uh, to see Leslie. But, uh, Anybody else with a question, please? I haven't had a chance to look at your webpage, but have you updated us on your, have you completed your doctorate? 
this is about me. Uh, I did complete a doctorate at the University of Washington, which I had never planned to do. It was in music history, but uh, it was at the beginning of COVID, and we were going to have this big conference about Giselle, and we had everybody booked to come, and we had to cancel it. And uh, I was invited to teach a seminar at the University of Washington in the School of Music uh, to go along with this conference, and then the students at the culmination of the course would attend the conference. Of course, none of that could happen. I taught the course from my home on Zoom. <laughs> but my uh, longtime advisor who co-taught that seminar with me said, you know, do you just want to do that PhD, you know, now? And the university made it very, uh, they were very generous with me and enabled me to do it in a couple of years. So I was able to, to write about uh, Giselle and other ballets. I was, I've been co-writing a book with Marion Smith, who worked on this production with us, and I was able to use part of that for my dissertation. And anyway, it was very, very generous at the University of Washington. So that's what I did. <laughs> I never planned to go back to school. I've spent, I feel like I've spent way too much time in school, but there it was. The opportunity was there, and I was at home for a long time, so I got it done. Thank you. <laughs> uh, yes, please. And when will your book come out? Ah, uh, the, the book we've written will come out later this year. It's called, uh, this relates to Giselle, so I'm going to shamelessly uh, promote it. It's called Five Ballets from Paris and St. Petersburg. And it's a um, discussion of Giselle and some other 19th century ballets, Piquita, Le Corsair, which is a pirate ballet, La Valladere and Raimonda, some of the other classics that are still in repertory. And we discuss a lot of these early sources and try and give sort of scene-by-scene -scene descriptions of what happened on stage. I'm very interested in just what, what was done on stage. I think we, we haven't known a lot about what dancers really did or could do, how did they move, what kind of steps did they do, uh, how fast was the music, and what did the audience think, and why were these ballets popular? So we tried to explore all these things, and uh, they'll come out later this year, so. Thank you. Yes? Yeah, how can you decide uh, what ballets you want to produce or have here at the uh, how, how are the ballets chosen here? Uh, Peter Bull makes all of those decisions in his role as artistic director. And I know that it's, uh, it's sort of a balancing act between uh, a variety of styles. Uh, classical ballets, whether they're 19th or 20th century works, uh, full, full program works like Giselle or, or The Nutcracker or Swan Lake or Romeo and Juliet. Um, the works of George Balanchine have really informed this company's history and repertory. I think we have 50 works by George Balanchine, who was, who was one of the most uh, sort of productive and influential choreographers of the 20th century. Commissioning new works that are made here for our dancers is a very large part of the repertory and the mission of the company. So that is another aspect. Um, in the March rep, we will have two works made for us that will premiere, and then one work that was made during COVID, it was just filmed, and now will be performed live for the first time. So that's a real juxtaposition with this program, which, is, which presents a historical work. So that balancing act uh, and budget comes into it too, of course. So. 
But Peter makes all those choices. Anybody else with a question? Oh, I have another one. Oh, sure. You were, you were talking about the shoes and how, for the women, how the shoes are um, block shoes now, but back then they were, they were leather and darning, mm-hmm. which is something I know from my mother. Mm. Um, so what shoes are the ballerinas wearing today? Or uh, now? What shoes for are... This, for this production. What shoes are worn, what point shoes are worn for this production? The standard point shoes that the uh, dancers who dance on point wear. Most of the company wears a, a brand called Freed, which are made in London. Uh, every dancer has shoes made just for them. And they have what they call a maker. There's one person. So Leslie Roush has a maker. There's one person that makes her shoes. Uh, and you can ask her more about this afterwards. Every maker has a symbol, like there's an anchor or there's a crown, and they're all known by their symbols. And when you make an order, it's usually 18 months out before you'll get your order of shoes. So you really have to be thinking ahead. Um, uh, our production stage manager, Sandy, takes care of shoes and makes these orders and knows how much each how many each dancer wears per year, how fast they go through them. Some wear them until they're just like like bedroom slippers. <laughs> and others really want sort of hard shoes. They sort of, shoes die, that's the word we use, over time. They sort of break down and become softer. Some ballets, they want a softer shoe. Other ballets, say, which may have more balancing, they tend to want a harder shoe. And everybody has about maybe 10 to 15 pairs of shoes in various states of decomposition that they can choose from for rehearsals, performances, and things like that. Shoes are a whole industry and a whole thing in ballet. But the dancers will be wearing their standard point shoes today. Most most wear freeds, but not everybody. Yes, please. I think the shoes cost around $90 a pair, and I'm not sure how long they take to make. They take a while. I know you can YouTube it, and it'll take you sort of through how they're all made and, and how, the, how the pieces are put together, the bottom of the shoe and the shank and the satin, and, and everybody is, has real specifics. You know, I have three-quarter of an inch here, and then this comes up here, and then it's, it's all very uh, carefully sort of measured. But uh, I don't know how many they might be able to make in a day. I'm just not sure how that works. But it's, uh, it's sort of an involved process. Occasionally your maker will get tendonitis or break their wrist or something like that. And he can't get your shoes for, for X amount of time until, until, they're, until they're better. And if they retire, then it's a whole process of finding a new person. It usually means a lot of blisters and stuff while you're trying out new shoes. <laughs> you, know, you should ask Leslie. I'm sure she'll she'd fill an hour with that. So. <laughs> Have time for one or two more if anyone else. Yes. So are any of other um, adult Adam's um, works in a regular <coughs> repertoire? I've never seen any of his operas or heard of any, any other ballet. Adam wrote the ballet Le Corsair, uh, the pirate ballet, which is somewhat in repertory. It's a great score, 
Um, it was a real swashbuckler in its time. But uh, as far as operas, I don't... There are probably some recordings. There's one guy, Dario Salvi, who is uh, conducting for Naxos and is doing a lot of recordings of Adam's work. So they're starting to come out on the Naxos label. But as far as in any active repertory, I don't think there's too many. Giselle's really... Giselle and Oh Holy Night are the two, <laughs> two big ones. Yeah. Let's do... There was one more up here, yes. Uh, yeah, the guys get their shoes. What do they wear? Block. You know, th those are called generally called technique shoes. Just the slippers, and everybody has technique shoes. You can have cotton ones. You can have leather ones. People have different preferences. Um, I think we get most of those from Block. I'm a little out of my wheelhouse here with those shoes. And then there are jazz shoes, and then there are elastic booties which are sort of elastic shoes with a little heel on them. There's, you know, all, all different kinds of things are called for socks. So we have a whole repertory of socks. That, and and the, those are all provided. The footwear is provided for everybody as part of the, the contract and the companies, companies uh, what they provide for, for the dancers. So, but uh, the point shoes are the, are the specific, are the, the big heavy hitter and the the budget maker, so to speak. <laughs> All right, well, uh, please do remember that you are welcome to come down after the performance and speak with Leslie and James and Peter Bowl about Giselle. I'm so happy to see so many of you here today. I hope you enjoy the performance. Thank you. <laughs>